Because the king who reigns over his kingdom is full of mercy. And all who enter his kingdom are like the king. And he is a king of much mercy. The mere fact that we enter into his kingdom is evidence of his mercy. And as we have entered through the narrow gate and we now are on the narrow path, we too are distinguished by mercy. There is no one in the kingdom who is unmerciful. And those who are in the kingdom take on the likeness of the king. And they are kind and gentle because the king, King Jesus, is kind and gentle. They are, we are compassionate because our king is compassionate. And we are full of sympathy, sympathy, because our king is full of sympathy toward us. His administration is a reign of mercy, and all who are in the kingdom take on that mercy, like king, like citizens. And so this is the fifth beatitude. And the first four beatitudes we've already looked at, and there is a definite progression The first four Beatitudes actually define saving faith, and they define the one who takes that step to enter through the narrow gate. This sermon will end with enter through the narrow gate. Well, this is the narrow gate, the first four Beatitudes. Saving faith is described as being poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, being meek and hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that you do not possess and you so desperately need in order to enter into the kingdom. And once you enter through the narrow gate, you continue to, to, to have these, these virtues. You continue to be poor in spirit. You continue to mourn over your own sin. You continue to be meek and you continue to hunger and thirst not for an imputed righteousness, but for a practical righteousness. A.W. Pink summarizes this progression, and he says it better than I can say it. So I'm going to quote him. He writes, in the first four Beatitudes, a definite progression of spiritual awakening and transformation has been noted. First, There is the discovery of the fact that I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. That is poverty of spirit in verse 3. I'm going to repeat that. I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing to commend myself to God. That's being poor in spirit. Then second, Pink writes, there is a conviction of my sin a consciousness of guilt producing godly sorrow, long dash, mourning. Third, there is a renouncing of self-dependence and taking of my place in the dust before God. That is meekness, verse, verse 5. And then fourth, there follows an intense longing after Christ and His salvation 
long dash, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Pink then says, in the next four Beatitudes, and that would be verses 7 through 12, in the next four Beatitudes, we come to the fruits of a new creation and a transformed character. So, let me put it to you this way. The first four Beatitudes, verses 3 through 6, are the root, and verses 7 through 12 are the fruit. This is what flows from a life that is entered into or entered through the narrow gate. So, verses 7 through 12 describe an ongoing daily walk of faith down the narrow path. These first four Beatitudes are the root, the last four are the fruit. And so those who have entered through the narrow gate are full of mercy in verse 7. They are marked by purity in verse 8. They are known by being a peacemaker in verse 9. And they will be persecuted in verses 10 through 12. These alone are the salt of the earth in verse 13 and the light of the world in verse 14, okay? So, let's walk through verse 7 and and dig into verse 7. And as we walk through this word by word, the first heading I want to set in front of you is the receiving of divine mercy. The receiving of divine mercy. Before you can be merciful and show mercy to anyone else, you must first receive divine mercy in salvation. And that's all bound up in this one word, blessed. Blessed is pronounced by the king himself upon all of his citizens who are in the kingdom. All of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are blessed and are made to be recipients of divine mercy. Now, the word mercy is not found in the word blessed, but they, blessedness and mercy really overlap. The opposite of being blessed is to be cursed. Everyone is either blessed or they are cursed, and everyone in the kingdom is blessed. And everyone outside the kingdom is cursed. And so, to be cursed is to be under the wrath of God. To be blessed is to be out from under the wrath of God and to be under the favor and the grace and the mercy of God, okay? And so, to be blessed... Is to, is to, it includes all the blessings of salvation, regeneration, justification, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, union with Christ, communion with Christ. All of that is bound up in this word blessed. And those who are blessed are those who have become the object of the mercy, the saving mercy 
of God. So I've got some cross-references here just to really establish this in, in our thinking. When we come to a short verse like Matthew 5, 7, we, we've got to appeal to the rest of Scripture. We've got to put our arms around the whole Bible and bring it in to verse 7 here. So, Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved because God is rich in mercy. And the word mercy means to look upon one who is in distress, who is, who is ruined, who is perishing, who is hopeless, who is helpless, and God looks upon that one with mercy and is moved with compassion and with pity to rescue them and deliver them from his own wrath. That's what mercy means, God's saving mercy. He looked upon you when you were unlovely. He looked upon you when you were wretched. He looked upon you when you were depraved and corrupt and defiled and chose not to leave you where you were, but was moved to do something. He, he wasn't stoically saying, okay, I choose him. No, he was moved to step in. And he said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I will harden the rest. And so, when God says, or when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, this all begins with God having mercy upon us. In turn, we will then be merciful to others. We'll get to that in just a moment. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then in verse 16, Paul says, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Mercy is what moves the heart of God to step in and to save us from eternal destruction and eternal damnation. It was mercy that moved the heart of God toward us. Let me give you another verse, Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is the new birth. It's becoming a new creature in Christ. 
And what Paul is saying in this text is he saved us according to his mercy. If there had been no mercy, God would have left us where we were, and instead of mercy, we would have received justice. You don't want justice. Justice means we go to hell. Mercy means we go to heaven. Mercy means we do not receive what we deserve. Mercy means we instead receive what we do not deserve, which is salvation. One more verse. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. I love this verse. I want you to love this verse. Kent says he loves this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means praise be to God the Father, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God stepped in because of his great mercy. And not just his mercy, his great mercy. He had, he has oceans of mercy for our little speck of dust. He has galaxies of mercy for our tiny little life that was drowning in our own sins. And so God had mercy. So this word blessed, there's so much bound up in this word blessed. And, and we say the word blessed in such a, at times, a frivolous way. All of salvation, every aspect of salvation is bound up in this word blessed. And if you're not blessed, you're cursed. And you're under the curse of God. And so to be blessed is to enter into the kingdom. And it was mercy that moved the heart of God toward you. Now, second, I want you to see the showing of believers' mercy. Those who receive mercy from God are those who freely give mercy to others. Believers are merciful people because of the mercy that has been shown to them by God. And if you do not show mercy, it is a sure sign that you have never received mercy from God. So he says, blessed are the merciful. The merciful are those whose character and practice is described as being full of mercy towards others. It's not mercy towards God. God does not need our mercy. It is our mercy towards other believers as well as to our neighbor who is still under the curse of God. And so, blessed are the merciful. Now, again, this word merciful refers to, it means, those who are compassionate toward others. Those who are moved with pity toward those who are in distress. 
It is those who have a gracious disposition toward those who are hurting. It is those who feel and act with compassion. So it's twofold. It's both the feeling as well as the action. It's not action that is devoid of feeling compassion and pity. And the word compassion in the, in the original language means in the intestines. We say today, oh, I love you from the bottom of my heart. Well, that's not deep enough. In the first century, they said, no, I love you from my intestines, which is even deeper. That's in the pit of my stomach. And there are times we feel things in the pit of our stomach. That's even deeper than a shallow with the heart. And I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. And so the word compassion means you feel deeply for someone else who is in need. You're not living in a bubble. You're, You're not living on an island. You're not living disconnected from other people. And when you see them in their time of need, it affects you. It affects your affections, which is an interesting play on English words. We, we, we are to be affected in our affections when we have mercy. So the one who is merciful has a forgiving spirit, does not carry a grudge, turns the other cheek, returns good in the place of evil, returns love in the place of hatred, refuses to return an insult suffered by insulting back, does not retaliate, and the reason is because this person has a new heart, and this person has a new disposition, and this person has been given new passions, and this person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, okay? So this is what has happened in your life when you walk through the narrow gate. You now are moved to step in and to relieve the suffering and to relieve the hurt of those who are suffering. And two days ago, I, I did a graveside and a funeral. And I had two hours, two and a half hours between the graveside and the funeral. I had plenty of time to go home, to eat lunch, to work on things. The widow said to me, would you come in and eat with us? There's no way I can say no to the widow. I I said, I'll come in for a moment. I sat down at a table, 
No one else was sitting. None of her family was sitting with her. I sat with her thinking about this passage. I sat with her for two hours. Here is a widow. I have just buried her husband. I'm about to preach her husband's funeral. I need to show mercy. And you know what? It was a work of God because it was easy to show mercy. It wasn't forced upon me. There are all kinds of situations like this in your life where you need to show mercy, where you could have easily pulled out and gotten something to eat. You could have easily pulled out and taken care of other things that are stacking up that are pressing deadlines upon you. But when we see someone like this, we have to show mercy, right? So come to Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, and verse 30. And you know this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm going to get ahead of myself for just one moment. I want your eye to go to the end of this, to verse 37. And then we're going to walk through this. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. So this whole parable is about showing mercy. So in verse 30, Jesus replied and said, and he gives now this parable to this this, uh, lawyer, verse 25, who said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the lawyer, verse 29, I mean, this is a, a Washington, D.C. lawyer right here. <laughs> this is, he's playing the end game, end run game. So who is my neighbor trying to distance himself from having to get involved and to show mercy towards his neighbor. So Jesus gives this parable to show him your neighbor is not the person who lives next door to you. Your neighbor is anyone who's right in front of you who has a need, who crosses your path, and, you have, and they have a need, and they are in distress. That's your neighbor. So he says in verse 30, or Luke writes, verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it goes down from the high country of Jerusalem down into the lower valley of Jericho and fell among robbers. And that is a winding road that you can't see around the next corner. And and it, it's a place for robbers to hang out. And they can just jump out from behind the, the next turn in the road, and you're sunk. And, and it's a narrow crevice, and it's straight down, and you can't jump off the side of the road. You're stuck. So as Jesus begins to tell this story, I mean, this, this lawyer is no doubt nodding his head. Oh, I got the picture of this. And they stripped him. 
and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. I mean, he's on the doorstep of death. And by chance, and when Jesus says by chance, there's almost like a twinkle in his eye, nothing's by chance. <laughs> a priest was going down on the other, uh, was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he didn't have to get involved and probably just kept looking straight without making eye contact with this man who's half dead. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as soon as he says a Samaritan, the Samaritans were, I, I say this nicely, they, they were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, but they were half-Assyrian. And so the Jews just looked down on the Samaritans. They wouldn't even walk through uh, the northern part of the promised land where the Samaritans lived. That's what, in John 4, when Jesus walked through, to Samaria, walked through Samaria to talk to the Samaritan woman, I mean, there was a gasp. Probably more so that he's talking to a Samaritan than, than he's even talking to a woman at noonday. We, we don't talk to those people. But a Samaritan who would be on the total other end of the religious spectrum from the priest and from the Levite, who no doubt were in a hurry to get to the prayer meeting. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. There's our word, compassion. He felt in his bowels. He felt in the pit of his intestines, in his, in his stomach. He was moved on the inside. He, he wasn't repulsed like the Levite and the, and the priest. No, he, he felt that tug on the inside. Verse 32, and came to him. He didn't stay on the other side of the road. And it's a narrow road, by the way. It's not like, a, you know, eight-lane I-75 out here. <laughs> it's a narrow little road. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, which means he had to remove some part of his own clothing and wrap it around his wounds. And pouring oil, well, that's a costly um, commodity, and wine, that's a costly commodity, on them, referring to the wounds, and put him on his own beast, so he'll now walk so that this beaten man can ride on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This is unbelievable. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spent, when you sp what, whatever more you spend, I when I return, I will repay him. Excuse me, I will repay you. I mean, he, he just put his credit card down. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, 
Here's my signature already. Just fill it in. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. What we just looked at is mercy. It's mercy in action. It's stepping in to help someone else who is in distress, who's hurting. In this case, who's been beaten up and has suffered great loss. To step in and self-sacrifice and show mercy. So, you and I will have many opportunities to show mercy. And I want to say again, this doesn't mean that if someone's on the side of the road at a, at a street corner begging for money, that you're to give him money. You need to give him a job. He can work for the most part. There are exceptions. But as we go through life and we encounter people who are at the end of the rope, or who have suffered some kind of great loss, whether it's a loss of a husband, loss of a job, loss of health, we must step in and show mercy. So, one more heading to see. As we finish out this verse, the third heading I want you to see is the receiving of more mercy. Now, this last verse, the last part of the verse ends with kind of a surprise. It says, for they shall receive mercy. The they refers to the one who is the merciful. The they refers to the one who is blessed and not cursed. The they refers to the one who already has saving mercy. So what does this mean? For they shall receive mercy. They already have mercy from God. And what this means is they shall receive more mercy, a fuller expression of God's mercy. And there's a, there's a principle going on here that, that the amount of mercy you show to others is how it's going to come back to you from God in just daily Christian living. Not to get into the kingdom. That's all by grace. But once you're in the kingdom, the extent that you show mercy to others will be, in part, the measure of mercy that God will continue to show towards you in just daily affairs of life. This has nothing to do with your salvation, your eternal destiny has everything to do with your journey once you're inside the kingdom as you're headed to heaven. Now, I've, I've got to give you two verses. Galatians 6, verse 7. It's just a fundamental principle of life in the kingdom. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So do you want mercy? You want more mercy? 
then you must sow mercy. And please notice who goes first. We would naturally say, well, you, God, you show me more mercy, and then I'll give mercy. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you sow, and then you reap. In fact, you, you, you reap after you sow. And sometimes it's several months between the sowing season and the reaping season. doesn't mean it's going to happen that same day. But you're sowing mercy. There's a fundamental principle. You, are, you will reap mercy. I have another cross-reference, Matthew 7, verse 2. Jesus said, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So if you measure out a small teaspoon of mercy to others, then that same teaspoon is what God takes out of your hand, and he measures out his mercy back to you. If you would like a lot of mercy, then you're going to have to get a shovel full and shovel out a lot of mercy from your heart and your actions towards others. And then God will take that same shovel and shovel it out to you. So, for they shall receive mercy. There's a certainty about that word shall. It shall. Um, mercy given will mean mercy received. Mercy shown will mean mercy received. There will be mercy for mercy that will be coming back to you. So there, there's three stages here in this, in this beatitude, I, and I don't want you to miss this. Step number one is God is merciful to us in saving us and blessing us and removing the curse from us and bestowing the fullness of salvation upon us. Every one of us who are saved in this room are all equally saved. We are all equally justified. We're all equally reconciled. We are all equally redeemed. There is no one who is more saved than anyone else is saved in this room, okay? We have all received the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first of the three stages here of what's going on in verse 7. And I, I want you to keep your eye on the bouncing ball. That's stage number one. Stage number two... We who receive mercy are then to be merciful. We who receive saving mercy are to be the most tender-hearted, compassionate, patient, long-suffering people towards others. When you walk into church on Sunday, that ought to be the most merciful place in Dallas, Texas, because that's where sinners gather who have received mercy and have become saints. And they now, out of the overflow of the mercy that's been shown to them, 
they now show mercy to others. That's the second step in this. Blessed, step number one, are the merciful. That's step number two. For they shall receive mercy. That's step number three. And as we show mercy to others, God just then opens the floodgates in somewhat a direct proportion. As we have shown mercy to others. Now, a lot of us men can be high justice, low mercy operators. Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. And we've got to be high mercy. And you can be high justice, but you're going to have to have some breaks on that justice. And you're going to have to push down on the gas pedal of mercy and to be very generous and liberal, in the right sense of the word liberal, liberal with mercy. Now, let me show you one more verse how this works. We're in Matthew 5. Look with me at Matthew 6. And I, I, just, I just want to button this down. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Whoa, I thought it was the other way around. God, give me forgiveness to the measure that I forgive other people. Now, look at verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So I see some of your faces there in the headlights. So how does this work? Theologians have to make careful distinctions. We have to make a distinction in God's forgiveness. And there are two levels of God's forgiveness. And if you don't see this, these verses, you're, you're going to lose your ball in the weeds. There is judicial forgiveness, and there is family forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness from God is a one-time act in which, at conversion... You believe in Jesus Christ, and judicially in the courts of heaven, every sin that you have ever committed, are committing, and ever will commit has been canceled out, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is judicial forgiveness. You stand before God, and He is the judge of heaven and earth, and He has the books, and He has every sin you've ever committed recorded in it, and in that moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, He rips those pages out of His books and burns them, 
and there is no record of any sin that you've ever committed. That is a one-time act. It will never be uh, revoked, both in time and throughout eternity. You'll never have to come and stand before the judge again and be condemned for your sin, okay? So I want everyone to hear that loud and clear, loud and clear. But that's not the end of the story. There is also family forgiveness. Now that you're in the family, now that you're in the kingdom, and now that you have judicial forgiveness, you have all kinds of relationships with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And when you offend them, and when you do wrong with them, or when you disobey God, you need to confess your sin to God on a daily, ongoing basis. You say, how often? As soon as you are convicted. Just stop right there and ask for God's forgiveness and go to the person that you offended and ask for their forgiveness. And you may say, oh, I thought I'm already forgiven. I don't have to ever ask God for forgiveness again. Yes and no. No, you'll never have to come before the judgment bar of heaven and ask for judicial forgiveness again. Your slate's clean. You're as certain for heaven as if you've already been there 10,000 years. However, you need daily, ongoing family forgiveness. There were many times growing up, I did, I disobeyed my father. I never lost my last name. I lost a lot of joy and a lot of happiness and the ability to sit down. <laughs> But I never lost my place at the table, and I never lost my, my, my sonship. But there are consequences to sin in the Christian life. Read Psalm 51 and read Psalm 32, and you'll find out that you will lose joy, you will lose peace, you will even lose physical health, you will, live, you will lose strength. You will lose zest for living. You will lose the blessing of God on your ministry. You, you will lose a lot. No, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to be going in circles in the wilderness down here until you confess your sin to God and make it right. So that is why when we come to the Lord's Prayer, uh, when we arrive there, we're going to talk about this. That as often as you ask for daily bread, you need to ask for daily forgiveness. Not to get into heaven, but to be in right standing, not to have right standing, but to really have intimacy with God and intimacy with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, this passage that we have just looked at in, in Matthew chapter 6. It's the very same principle as Matthew 5, verse 7. 
Because in Matthew 6, he says, if you don't forgive your, your, your others, then God's not going to forgive you. Okay? If you forgive others, God will forgive you. Not judicially, but temporal family forgiveness. The same... Whoops, sorry, Kent. Wow, it's empty. Good. The same principle is operative in Matthew 5, verse 7. That to the degree and to the measure you show mercy to others... God shows mercy back towards you. There's not a man in this room who doesn't need daily, ongoing expressions of God's mercy in our walk with the Lord. Well, the ball's in our court. We need to show mercy to others. And as we do, it comes back to us by the same measure as Matthew 7, verse 2 told us. And whatever you, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. It's a fundamental principle. So, that's what I've got. And it's challenging, it's convicting, but it's, it's good because it is a positive motivation. And really what should be spurring us on is not just so we can have more mercy, What should be spurring us on is the mere fact that we've already received mercy from God. We got the big dose already, okay? Uh, We've already had our sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. We, We already have entered into a state of no condemnation, okay? That's all the motivation we really need. I mean, we ought to be the most forgiving, um, non retaliating people on the planet, Um, high mercy people. And the outcome will be, God likes that. Let let me give you an extra dose of mercy then. I like seeing you merciful towards others. So, I'm going to land the plane. Uh, Questions, thoughts, um, insight, okay? All the way over there, you got the box. Gotta have, gotta have the box. Yeah, Keith, you ready? Yes, sir. You living ready? Um, on this topic, uh, is, is that on? Can you hear me? Good morning. Okay. Good so, morning, sir. Hey, on this topic, can yeah. you speak to? Uh, grieving the Holy Spirit, as far as if you don't show mercy or the constant need for forgiveness, can you speak to what that means? Yeah. (laughs) That's in Ephesians 4, somewhere around verse 30, 29 or 30. Maybe it's 29. Um, When we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And there is a um, displeasure that he feels because he is the Holy Spirit. And what is unholy in our lives does grieve him. And so that, that is motivation for us, number one, to not sin. Number two, to confess our sin as quickly as we can once we have committed that sin. The reciprocal is 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit. 
which is like a campfire, and someone pours water on the campfire, and it puts out the fire, and so that is a, a diminishing of really the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our lives. So, um, did, you, did you find it, Ephesians 4, what is it, verse 30? Okay, I had it right the first time. Um, so, that's very simply what that means. Yeah, thank you for the question. So, there should be great sensitivity in our heart uh, towards, yeah. towards sin because, I mean, it's just like whenever I sinned, I mean, that grieved my mother. Um, and it grieved my father, but he had a way of making me grieve. <laughs> we had a come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> Someone else? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Dr. Lawson, for being here. We really appreciate it. When, uh, when you were teaching recently just now, it reminded me about how Christ gave us the bath, but we need our feet yeah, to be yeah. washed. John 13. And then I also thought, well, God, help us to be more merciful, that you'll give us more opportunity to be <laughs> merciful and be able to glorify you even greater in heaven. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a great point. Yeah, I love your cross-reference there on Matthew thir- I mean, uh, John 13. You know, Peter wanted a, you know, a bath, and Jesus had to say, no, you've already been saved. You don't need a bath, but your feet sure are dirty, <laughs> and, and you need your feet washed, meaning you don't need to be saved all over again when, when you sin. You just need to confess your sin and have the Lord wash your feet, uh, which have become smelly and, and dirty. Yeah, and the Lord does give us opportunity to be merciful, and it's an amazing thing how the Lord brings certain people into our lives and situations to stretch us to the next level of being merciful toward, towards others. And so we, we, we don't, we're, we're not there overnight. It's, it's a growth in our being merciful. And many times, God crushes us with a trial to help us be merciful to other people because I now know what you're going through because I've been there. And it has also humbled me as I've gone through a trial, this trial. It makes me more sensitive and more merciful to other people um, as they're going through a trial. And so God is so wise really to keep pushing the fence posts out to enable us to become more merciful and more merciful, one way to enlarge our heart toward others who are in affliction is by bringing affliction into our life. And 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and following, uh, talk about that, that God is the God of all comfort, and He has afflicted us so that He may comfort us with a comfort that we may share with others. So, somebody else. In Hosea 6.6, 6, in the King James, it says, I desire, desire mercy, not sacrifice. Is yeah. this the same idea what we're studying today? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that cross-reference. I appreciate that. 
Um, and the, the meaning there is in Hosea's day, Israel was, had become apostate, and they were just going through the empty motions of religion without the reality in their heart. So they're, they're showing up for, at, at the temple, and they're just showing up um, wherever believers are gathered together and just going through empty motions where their heart wasn't being changed. And so that's why God says, I've, I've had enough of your offerings. And you, you can read it in Isaiah 1. I mean, God literally says, I've had enough. Stop your offerings. Don't bring me anymore. It's just hypocrisy. What I want is mercy. Well, what I want, in essence, is for your heart to being changed and to be being transformed. I want you there to be love in your heart for me and for your neighbor. Then bring your offerings. And that's why in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you know, if you, if you have hatred in your heart or if you know someone else has hatred towards you, leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled to, to your brother. I, I don't, God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Fullness of the earth is his. What, what he wants is sons and daughters who have a heart of mercy and love. Somebody else. Kent, you got anything there? Okay, we got something back there then. Yeah, thank go you, ahead. Thank you, Dr. Lawson. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question about uh, confessing sin. Yeah. Um, I know that Christ is our high priest, and we can go to him directly and confess, but um, I also know in James, um, it says that we can confess to a brother in Christ and so that you may find healing. Um, do you find that that's also important to do? Yes, but I, I don't think we are to be airing our dirty laundry with everybody else. That, that's not helpful. And a lot of men's groups end up being something like this. We're all going to get together, and I'm going to throw up on you, and then you throw up on me, and then we bump chests, and, and, and we go home, and we go, I feel so much better because I threw up on the guy next to me. Um, no, the confessing of sins to others, it depends on the arena of that sin, uh, what the nature of that sin is. And so there have been times that I've had to get into the pulpit and confess my sin because my sin from the previous week was committed in the pulpit, where I had a misuse of humor, and that's happened more than once. And so it, it doesn't do me any good just to go, let's say, to the elders and confess my sin because the whole church needs to hear me confess my sin because I said what I said last Sunday in front of everybody and made fun of somebody. So it depends on the arena in which the sin was committed and who has been affected by, by this sin. And so if my sin has affected other people, then I need to ask for their forgiveness. But other than that, there, there is no virtue in, in putting all your dirty laundry out for everyone to see. Uh-huh. Okay, anyone else? Okay, well, guys, we'll be here in two weeks. 
And the, the next beatitude, I mean, these things just keep getting deeper, but it's blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so we, we need to dig into this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, I'll be preaching across the street uh, this Sunday. Uh, it is a powerful passage of Scripture as Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, and he reads it, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach, to proclaim liberty to the captives, etc. He hands it back to the head of the synagogue and says, today this has been fulfilled in your ears. They are in such outrage that they want to run him off of a cliff because he will explain some things to them about sovereign election. So, I don't know how far we're going to get into this passage, but um, you're going to want to be, be there if you need a place to, to come to church. So, I'll see you Sunday, and then I'll see you right here in two weeks, okay? All right, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here.